0: This is state of demand gen. hey everyone welcome to the state of demand gen podcast where we're going to mash together all the different content types events interviews demand gen live when i'm a guest on a podcast linkedin content all here in audio format if you haven't already i would highly encourage you to sign up for the demand gen live sessions that i'm putting together with catano dinardi at 7:30 p.m 4 30 pacific on tuesday evenings tons of great content in there, lots of great insights, live Q&A, building a little community inside there. I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. So we are going to start tonight with what falls through the cracks when leadership adopts the growth at all costs mindset. So this one will be more like open-ended, um, I know that I've worked in a couple of these companies. I'm sure that a lot of us either, whether we recognize it or not, we have probably been in one. If you've been in the professional world, you know, venture funded type of world over the past 15 years. So, um, yeah, Megan, I'll pass this over to you and you can uh, talk about some of the things that fall through the cracks.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And, um, to be candid about my experience too, I, consider myself a woman of high integrity and empathy and ethics, but, um, the pressure is real and the pressure can be real. And so I, I personally have definitely been in multiple startup situations where I come into a new company, um, very optimistic about, um, you know, standing my ground on certain things, but I've certainly been in tough situations where, um, I've, I've seen the repercussions of this. Um, and I've learned my lessons. Um, so I tried to, you know, carry those, those with me, but just to dive into a couple of examples, um, that I can share from my personal experience. Um, you know, I think one of the last companies I was at, um, managed by Q in my last like nine months there, we were out fundraising me and the CEO. And, you know, we had a, you know, we had a a clock ticking where we were going to run out of money. Right. And um, as you're pitching investors or uh, talking through potential acquisitions, um, the numbers matter a lot when you're in, in those conversations. And so, Um, you know, I think that to, to kind of get back to like the very specific question, I think the things that start to fall through the cracks are, um, you become fixated on achieving a goal and I'm actually all about, like, I'm, I relentlessly pursue goals. And if I'm, if I have such a fixed mindset, sometimes I can have tunnel vision in a bad way. And so I think really I've been caught up there and I think what suffers is, Um, your customer experience. You make decisions that are in the best interests of your company and hitting a target within a timeframe. Your internal team members, you uh, inadvertently or purposefully create a pressure cooker environment for your sales team, your marketing team, Customer success team. um, That stresses everyone out. It causes them to make decisions that they wouldn't make otherwise if they weren't in such a a, you know pressured situation. Um, And ultimately, even if you know in hindsight, we were able to drive short-term results to get us over a finish line, but they weren't sustainable. Um, And once we got through that finish line, things started to fall apart. And you know, in hindsight, it definitely wasn't worth it. Um, I definitely, I'm, you know, I personally remember putting pressure on my team, um, on myself, um, believing that this was the most important thing that it had to be done for the company to survive. So you can rationalize it in your head. (laughs) Um, but you know, looking back on that, I, that's not, a type of company I want to run. That's not a type of team you know I want to build. But I have a lot of empathy for, for founders, for CEOs, for uh, heads of sales, heads of marketing, for people that are in that position because you can be the best type of person, but if you're in a really tough situation, you can you can find yourself maybe making decisions you wouldn't otherwise make. And so, I think for me, the way what I realized was I needed to make sure that as I chose my next environments, that I was not putting myself in an environment where that would be the case. Um, and that would ensure that I could, um, you know, continue to live out the things that I believe to be true. But um, yeah, I mean, I think Prince, you, you said humanity like falls through the cracks. And I think that's a, that's a great word to sum it up because it impacts your customers, your internal team, um, and the short-term gains are completely temporary they, they always fall apart. And so, um, you know, and even in this particular instance, we ended up getting acquired by WeWork and it was awesome. And then it wasn't awesome. (laughs) And so like, even the acquisition in and of itself, they ended up spinning the company back out. The whole thing was kind of a crazy wild ride. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, my, my biggest lesson is, um, it's a tough situation to be in and it's best to avoid those types of environments. If you don't want to want to mess with it, because I do believe even the best people can be sucked in and uh, maybe do things that they wouldn't otherwise do in a different environment.
0: So it'll be really interesting um, to talk about the ways to identify that before you're hired. So we can cover that in a moment, but this one sums up pretty simple to me. It's the first people that feel it are your employees. And you will see that in retention of your sales team is probably the first indicator. Um, And then the people who will feel it next are your customers. And, um, I don't, I don't think there's much more detail than that. Like the two things that matter most in your organization, if you're trying to build a big company are people and are the people that work for you and your customers that you serve. And so, and both of those things, um, are often not in alignment when you are focused on hitting a short-term financial, um, outcome. Cool. So, um, we'll kind of deviate from the agenda here. Cause I want to go deeper. How do you identify those things? before you start working there?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, one decision point is, is the business, um, you know, is it a VC backed unprofitable startup or is it a profitable business that can stand on its own? And so I think that that's absolutely, I mean, I, I kind of decided after 15 years in VC backed companies, like, needed a break. (laughs) Um, we'll see for, for how long. And so I think that that's, um, I think that's signal number one. I think number two is especially people younger in their career are often not as confident asking for financial information in the interview process. And you absolutely have a right to do so, especially if you're taking on any type of leadership position. And so, you know, ask the tough questions around what's your, CAC? What's your CAC to LTV ratio? Um, you know, what are the unit economics? What are the margins? Um, really dig into it and actually see, is the business healthy? A business can put up big numbers, GMV and, and the actual revenue in your pocket is, is tiny. Um, once you, once you take in, into account all of the costs. So, you know, I think you have a choice, like, am I going sort of the VC back route or not? Um, Look at the financials. Um, And then I think also I always ask about, um, you know, how much of the sales team is hitting their quota. How do you set Uh quotas? How do you set goals? Um, You know, what's the turnover like? Um, Similarly on the marketing team or the customer success team. Um, And uh, yeah, so I think those are like the big things that are, Fairly black and white because you have those those decision points, and then you want to dig into sort of the culture, right? You know, ask around about, try to uncover the things that people are not going to bring up to you in an interview when you're the candidate um, to really understand like the the hard part about working at the company, how leadership responds to situations. Um, so those are the top things that come to mind. What would you add, Chris?
0: I mean, I don't have much to add on this one. Uh, I really don't. I, I feel like part of it is just experience and being able to like to feel it. Um, and then secondarily, I, I love digging deeper into what is the a- average sales uh, quota attainment, How, what is the quota, um, quota coverage over their OTE? would be an interesting one. How many reps do you have? How, do, how long do they ramp? Like how long's your sales cycle? I think trying to dig into some of those things might um, might be an indicator. Another one for the marketers listening is one that I love is how is your commercial budget allocated? If you have $10 million in commercial budget between sales success and marketing, how much goes to marketing? And if they say, if they say 500K, it's probably not a company you want to go and market with. Um, so some of the, some of those type of deeper financial questions will tell you a story about how willing they are to invest in your function. And as a marketer, let me tell you, it's a, it's a lot better position to be marketing in a company that prioritizes marketing first, just is, um, and there's not that many out there, more companies will do it. As you start to see more companies go into a freemium user acquisition product led type of style um, you will see more companies lean into marketing because that is the, 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 um, complementary GTM to a product led growth strategy. Cool. Switching gears here. We'll kind of go out of order and then maybe there's a, uh, a question we can grab and then we can get back on the agenda. And so the one, I actually talked about it a little bit today on a podcast. And so we'd be happy to dive deeper for you all here, which is, um, why intelligent leaders stop innovating? And so the, the just for some context, um, I was jamming with someone. You're going to like that podcast episode whenever it comes out, maybe Friday. Um, a lot of good insights um, about PR and non-measurable type, type things that I'm starting to believe in a lot. Um, and so why do innovator lead, innovative leaders stop innovating? Let's look at, for instance, the VP of demand at the um, quarter billion dollar ARR SaaS company, why do they stop innovating? Because there's three management layers between them and anyone that actually does anything. And so, if you're not like if you're not in the work, how are you going to get better? How are you going to know when something doesn't work? We're just by looking at a Salesforce dashboard, you're not going to know what to do instead. Um, and so that that one is really fascinating that as you get further and farther away from the work that you can't innovate, you can't be creative. I think a lot of people lose when they start getting too far into the, the management side, which is why I love to still be in accounts. And I still love to do this type of stuff and promote it and understand when we post the podcast in the comments of my LinkedIn post, how many people click on it and listen to it. I love knowing that it's an insight. and um, so, um, I think that's one, the second one that is, um, that I, am also really interested in is that over time you have as a leader, if you've been in a company for a while, you've built your reputation on whatever this is, like you have now continued to invest in a model. Let's just pretend that it's, um, you know, the lead gen MQL model and you're getting 5,000 MQLs and the company's celebrating every month. It takes, um, it takes a lot of courage to be like, look, I know I built this. I know that I have 15 people on my team. 10 of them are not doing anything important. Um, I know that I made a mistake. I own that. We're going to have to retool what we're doing in order to be successful again. And I'm going to take a step back. It's hard to do that. And so most people won't. Most people will will wait it out and then find a new job and then leave someone else with the mess later. Um, so those are two of the two of the ideas that I see
1: This is an interesting question and um, i I wonder how much poor prioritization and time management has to do with it as well because most of the leaders that i 've worked with, and I certainly fall into this trap myself is you know, 80, 90% of your time is just like making sure the trains run on time and just like running the business, making things happen and, um, you know, not saying no to things and your calendar is full of zoom meetings from nine to six. And then you're cranking out work, you know, from five to 7 AM and, and eight to to 10 PM. And you, you literally are not creating space and time for, Creative thinking and um, and giving your your brain the chance to create. If you keep if you stay too busy, it inhibits creativity in my experience um, and innovation. And most leaders have insanely packed calendars and don't think about creating that space that they need. And so, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm big on time management. So when I fall into the trap, I'm able to like dig myself out of it and recognize when I'm falling into the trap. But I think that has a lot to do with it. People are just so busy and some of the best, most like inspirational and visionary leaders I know are just very purposeful about creating time and space for them to, um, you know, to have that creativity, to have that innovation, and I completely agree with you about the connection to the customer. Um, that that's absolutely a big a big one, and I think like we share that philosophy. Um, like no matter what position I've been in, I'm always either directly managing an account or very involved in multiple customer accounts. Um, and I don't let a week go by without talking to a customer, no matter what position I've been in, um, pretty much my whole career. Um, so I think that's that's so important. So yeah, I would just add the the time management piece.
0: Right on. So let's uh let's get into the questions. Uh, Uma, I think if I pronounce it correctly, has a great one. I'm gonna unmute you and let's get into it. Some little some little ABM. I was actually just down the street at someone's office today, quarter million dollar ARR SaaS, talking about ABM. They're at Series A, so this is timely. Let's do it.
2: Hey, Chris. Hey, Megan. Hey, good to see you. Nice to connect with you guys again. Yeah, so um, I was interviewing at a company today, early stage startup, and we talked about ABM, and I was trying to um, educate them as much as I know myself. I'm new to ABM. And some of the challenges that they talked about is um, they don't have a big database set up already. So they don't have, they know that these are the big target accounts they need to go to, um, but they don't have a lot of budget also to implement terminus or demand base and or or enrich and also how how would we um, go about doing that? Because I feel for a small startup, in concept targeting, target accounts where you can get the maximum outreach and maximum chances of revenue generation. Like ROI is high. In, in a concept manner, it it sounds really good to do. Mm-hmm. What has been your experience? How to do this? How to scale it?
0: Yeah. A couple questions for you. This is why I love being on here. So we can go back and forth. How much does the product cost? Or if oh. you had, if you don't know, if you had to guess, what do you think it costs?
2: I don't know, and uh, it's a medical device company, so I I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I imagine it's have. a yeah. I imagine it's relatively high in those in those regulated industries. For yes, it is a,
2: it's an FDA approved product, mm-hmm. um, so it could be high, and it'll be something that the doctors and hospitals and insurance companies and all will use.
0: Mm-hmm. So, for everyone listening, there's a couple key uh, decision points that I make on about how I'm going to approach this. The first one is how much does the product cost? And the next question is what is the TAM? What is the total addressable market? And so if the product is less than 50 K ACV, I'm, I might use company firmographics in my LinkedIn targeting, but I'm not putting together a huge ABM strategy. I think that the cutoff, the, what terminus publishes and sangram publishes 50 K. I think it might actually be closer to hundred K to go through all the effort to do all of those different things. You all decide, but that somewhere in the 50 to hundred K range is the, if if it's lower than that, it might not be even ABM is a good strategy. It might just might as well do good demand gen with company graphic targeting on top of it. The next one is TAM, which is interesting. So um, maybe there's only 500 accounts that you can sell to. Like for this company, for instance, maybe you can only sell to level one trauma centers. I don't know how many there are in the U.S., but there's probably less than a thousand. And at that at that point, you have you have, you pretty much have to go ABM. Um. The, the next thing so, that I think.
2: So one point on that, their device is to be used by consumers. So there is a wide range of application um, mm-hmm. that, that people can use. And it's not, it's, it's portable device that you can wear on yourself to monitor your EKG and temperature. So very, very relevant in, in COVID mm-hmm. and very portable. Um, so the application target market I see is huge. It it, It depends if
0: you're selling to the consumer or selling to the the hospital. That's really what it depends on, right? If you're selling to the consumer a portable device, like it's less than $1,000. I mean, ABM definitely doesn't make sense there, but I don't think that's the case. I don't think they would ask that question. Yeah,
3: yeah, no,
2: I think it's being sold to hospitals, insurance, mm -hmm. and they will use their device Mm -hmm. um, in their uh, patient management.
0: The next thing that I think about is do you need the tech? Like I get that, you know, terminus and demand base and those types of companies have built a strong reputation that you need them to run display ads at those target accounts and, and be able to push out ads natively on LinkedIn that you could do anyway. Like I know that they've built that idea in your head. Like the analytics part of it is the part that I would probably find most valuable. Although I haven't been inside of a lot of those tools very much because I just don't feel like they're necessary. Um, and so I would run, I would just run LinkedIn targeted ads. If you can't afford the, whatever it is, two to $5,000 a month for the ABM tool. Um, and I would invest it more in the ads. The second thing to think about is if you can, <laughs> if the company can't afford the piece of ABM tech, then they probably aren't ready to do ABM, right? Like that's a small expense relative to the whole program. You actually have to do stuff once you have it. Um, and so those are some of the things that the, the initial things that come to mind if you're pushing back on, no, I can't afford, you know, this $800 a month HubSpot tool or ABM tool, it's like, well, are you really ready to do some marketing then? Like Mm -hmm. those are some of the foundational things. It's like, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's like never mind. I'm not going to come up with anything smart. I was like, you know, trying to never mind. Yeah,
2: yeah no, it was more me trying to understand. It's it's not them yeah. saying that they want to do. It. it was me trying to understand that would would an ABM marketing work for them?
0: Yeah, I think the the another core difference for everyone. I think this is just like things that are popping in my head that I think people would find interesting. The next one is whether you are doing true named account marketing versus targeting with company firmographics. Like if you can only sell to the manufacturing industry, that is, I mean, technically a tier two, tier three form of ABM. You're just using company firmographic account firmographics as opposed to named accounts. And so like in general, if you're selling a B2B product and you're not just doing like random SEO or random ads targeted at people like you're doing ABM anyway. Um in in some in some form. So um yeah, I hope that I hope that was helpful. Any other follow-ups?
3: No,
1: definitely. Definitely helpful. Cool. Yep.
0: Keep the questions coming. Good to see you, Uma.
1: Yeah, they're coming. I uh here's a good one from Ashley. Um our marketers using email automation Lead to MQL to SQL nurtures as a crutch to avoid creating consistent of the moment quality content.
0: Ashley, I'm bringing you off mute for this one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right.
4: Give me you caught give me, me between children.
0: Give me one nice. Give, <laughs> give me uh, one level deeper here. So I mean, obviously the questions here, but let's get in like to the juicy stuff.
4: All right. So I switched from a portfolio of like forty brands. I remember. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To to one of just you know seven, eight, mm-hmm. and um, they're all a little stale. We're revitalizing things with some marketing. We have a product that puts out curated newsletters, but it's it's one list. We may build segmentation into that later. But we're big fans of using our own tools to show what our tools do. And I've been considering bringing some of my other brands on there and putting newsletters out through that platform that, that should appeal to our target personas. And instead of forking over, like we were on HubSpot where I used to be, and I know what all that beautiful segmentation can do. But I also know that we would spend forever building out these nurtures that like email to would just bottleneck it Mm -hmm. and no one would get qualified through that nurture and they would just get a call anyway cause yes. they had downloaded the ebook or whatever. Yeah. So I've, I've been thinking a little bit lately about like, well, could you make the argument that, that these tools and these, uh, automations that are available, like the reason we want to use them is cause they're really cool versus that they get the job done in the same way. It's
0: because they make it easy. Yeah. Um, and just because it's easy doesn't mean that you should do right. it. Right. And so like ever since, and I, if you can look at exactly what's happening on on what I do on LinkedIn versus an email nurture versus what I was doing in 2016 when I was focused a lot more on email than I am today, which is that you should be producing content at a high enough volume and a good enough quality that someone just gets into the stream and you Mm -hmm. are using it and you are pumping it out and it should be relevant to all key people. Like nobody wants your first email, like, Hey, welcome to our company. Here's a. a, Let
4: me tell you what I do now. Would you like to kick the tires? Blah
0: blah blah blah, blah. and so like, um, I I do believe that there's a there's a lot of reasons why they use nurtures. Um, We've been through some of them, like you know, the marketing automation vendors have trained them to do it that way, so that Mm -hmm. they can keep using the automation and different things like that. Um, But the second one is like, people don't create enough quality content to support anything but the nurtures for the five emails that they created three years ago and so um yes i think it is a crutch um i think that it holds marketers back from not creating enough of a volume i do believe that i do great (laughs) so just um affirming your uh your question thank you good observation
1: all right, we have... I think we need to bring John on next, one of our loyal listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, you're working on a piece for LinkedIn and you want some thoughts. I think um, we should un- we got, un- got, got unmute you and bring you here into the that conversation. can help
0: you, help you with this one.
1: Yeah,
5: I've so I have worked for a lot of CEOs in B2B and B2C, mostly B2B. Um, and it always... <laughs> the amount of time I spend trying to convince them to spend money on marketing is, is sometimes somewhat ridiculous and I've run sales and I've run marketing and I tend to prefer to run both. So I can kind of keep the fighting between the two organizations down and the expectations consistent, but I wanted to throw it out to the group and to you guys, you know, what are some of your thoughts? Why do so many, why are so many CEOs resistant to spend money on marketing and what creative things have you done to convince them the leverage point that marketing can truly be because you do good marketing and, and your sales get a lot easier and a lot more predictable.
0: Absolutely. I've worked in a lot of these different companies. The reason that they don't invest in marketing, if they do invest in marketing, they force it down your throat to run performance marketing lead gen so that they can measure it like sales because they think about people like salespeople. They just think about marketing like sales and it's, you know, you can do it, but it's not really the way to do it. Um, And the reason being is that most executives have been a professional for the past, at least 20 years, probably more. And so at the beginning of their career where they might've built a company to 50 million and then sold it for 400 million, they did it through brute force sales. And the reason that they could do it then is because that's the way buyers discovered and purchased products is that there was no they weren't going on google and saying how do i solve this and looking in 2001 they were waiting for someone to call them and disc- and show them a new tool or they were showing up at a at a trade show or whatever they were doing but like the that is the reason why they don't invest in marketing is because they had a very good success early in their career goes back to the beginning of why leaders don't innovate is they had a found a model that worked and they keep repeating it regardless of what, how the outcome changes. And then you get to, you get to 2020 and the effectiveness of that has decreased, but they haven't taken the steps and the learnings in order to, to see how there's a different way to do it. Um, And Megan, I got a couple more thoughts, but I'll pass it to you and then we can kind of go back and forth. The, the, I guess that maybe the point where you can help here is um, how how would you um,
1: convince convince?
0: Someone. And I don't really I don't really like the word convince, but I understand why it's being used in this context.
1: <laughs> how do you shift someone's perspective? <laughs> um, I um, I feel like this uh, a version of this came up before, too, because I know, Chris, I know you've said if they don't believe in marketing, find a different CEO to work for. Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: um,
1: but I, I am a big believer that people can change their minds and shift their perspectives. Um, but it requires that you speak to them in a language that they can understand. And I think in in this case, depending on the CEO, especially if they're more sales-focused, more metrics-driven... Um, almost making a business case for it, pointing mm-hmm. to other examples where it's worked, showing them uh, you know, the impact that um, good marketing has had at another company, um, finding opportunities to maybe get them to buy into a short-term experiment or test that you feel confident you can drive some type of result um, to to prove to them that, you know, and then get their buy-in. If I run this experiment and and do this result, you'll then, you know, let me um, give me more budget and let me sort of continue to scale this idea. Um, So that's how I would, I think, go about positioning it. Um, And also just having a frank conversation with them to gauge whether they're open-minded enough to even consider it. Because I, I will say, you know, I think to Chris's stance on this, there are some people that will never change their mind. And so trying to identify if that's the case for you is important. Um, If you do think they're open-minded, I would, I would go, I would go that route Mm -hmm. Um, and it might require a bit of compromise of continuing to do some things that maybe you don't think are the right thing to do, but the CEO wants you to do it while you have your small experiments on the side. Um, But results like pointing to real results is I think what changes people's mind.
0: Yeah. And, and, To be clear, it, the reason is not that you'll never change their mind. It's that it's going to inhibit your your progress. You're going to be slowed down by having to explain and convince people in every step of the way. And so if you, instead of work, spending all that effort and time trying to convince one, if you took a step back and found someone that believed in it, you could just go and you would learn at such an accelerated pace, which is why I feel that way. Now, in 2016, I did this. Like I worked at a company that you know, if they did spend on marketing, it was going to trade shows and doing these different things. And like I had to beg to run a $500 test on Facebook ads. (laughs) And 12 months later I was managing a $1.2 million budget on content and ads and demand. And so, and the, the way that I did that was I ran the $500 experiment, I tracked the, the four demo requests that came in. It took three or four months for them to close on an average 176 day sales cycle. And they closed faster. than the way that I positioned, then we had one deal we spent $500 and we got whatever it was, 36 K back. And then we had that. And then I looked at the sales cycle and I was like, this sales cycle was 50% of what it normally is for us. They closed faster. Um, this, it, the sales rep only had to go to two meetings. Normally we have to go to four. Um, you know, out of the four deals we won, one that was 25% win rate on the deals we're having SDRs call, we're winning at 7%. 25% seems better to me, and then just kept building. Then the budget went up a little bit, and then I convinced them that we didn't need to go to 12 trade shows, we could just go to three, and I could take the money that was left over from the nine that were doing nothing and we could move it into doing more of the programs that were working, and so, um. I'm very grateful that I went through that experience would, if I, if I didn't, I'm not sure that I would be here. However, knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't do it again. (laughs) Cause it just, it, it held me back a lot, but the struggle also taught me a lot that I think a lot of people get value out of now. So, you know, no regrets on no regrets on that one, but it's like, and I said on the, on the podcast that I was on today, like, if you are in that position, you have to, like at that time I was communicating with such confidence and conviction that my approach was better, that there were times where I was at risk of getting fired for how I was communicating because I felt so passionately about it. And secondarily, once you do that, you're on the hook for the results. And so you can get fired trying to actually get the money to do the experiment. And then if the experiment doesn't work, then you get fired too. Um, And if either of those cases happen, it's great. Like go, go find a place to work with that you were going to have to leave anyway because the CEO doesn't believe in marketing. So, um, yeah, I hope that's, I hope that story was helpful. It just echoes Megan's like figure out how to, to position an experiment where it's set up to succeed in real outcomes, not in leads and shit like that. Cause and I'm, I'll just go, go on another tangent here. Like I have a lot of people coming and ask now, ask if, if we will charge our fee, not on a, not on a, on a, uh, flat fee, but on a performance on based on performance. And I'm like, okay, what metric do you want to quantify our performance on? And they're like leads. And I'm like, if you want me to do leads, I can go and get you leads for two bucks and rip you off over three months. And then you're going to fire us. Like let's align our outcomes to something that matter. And so, um, yeah, set up the experiment to succeed, communicate on metrics that matter. And lastly, if you, have a, if you have a sizable enough experiment and it works, and then you should compare it to whatever's happening today. And so sales cycle, length, win rate, revenue, pipe, CAC, you can compare whatever you're doing to the 10 SDRs that are cold calling and, and make a black and white comparison. Those are some of the ideas. Great question, John. Appreciate you.
1: I know. There's so much chatter in the chat. I'm looking for the questions. <laughs> Ooh, we, uh, got a,
0: we got a good one from we got a good one from Chuck. Chuck, you're in, man. Let me get you in here.
1: Yeah. Oh, the company page question. Yeah. yeah. Hey there.
5: Yeah, uh, I was just kind of following up on a, a question that uh, um, Abai and I had last week about your uh, LinkedIn organic growth campaign and Mm -hmm. you had said you were focusing on growing your corporate page too and you had some experiments you were trying I was curious to see if you had an update on that how that was going and if it was going has it changed your mind any on using the personal profile pages for organic growth for your company's social media organic presence versus building a corporate page
0: so we'll take a look here. I'll just show you the open the keys to the castle and I'll walk you through a couple of things. Um, the first thing is that just the company page does not replace personal profiles. You need to do them in concert. And so in the process of building the company page one, just cause I believe and would like to really understand it better than anyone else is the reason that I'm doing this. Um, at the same time. So we have my profile and now Megan's posting and we have a couple other people on our staff. So having a lot of personal profiles going and then a company page that offers a unique, a unique differentiated point of view. That's not like just, you know, we raise this much money and, you know, here's a mm-hmm. gated case study or whatever it is. If you actually provide value and you use the platform in the way it's intended to be to be used and how the audience wants to consume content, I believe that it can work. And so over the past 30 days, we're at 4,000 followers, got 126,000 organic impressions. If you compute that into the CPM value of LinkedIn, that's $80,000 alone. Let me do the math again. Mm, $80 CPM. Mm, I'm not sure. 80 times 125. You, it's probably not $80,000. I can't do the math in my head. Um, Follower growth increased by 25% over the past 30 days. Will that growth continue? Will the trajectory stay the same or will it plateau or slow down? We'll find out 700 clicks to the website organic. I like that. Same, same difference. You're paying $10 cost yeah. per click on LinkedIn for the ads. Like, that's seventy grand. Sorry, seven thousand. Yep. Can't do the can't do math today. But <laughs> um, so yeah, those are those are some of the the metrics. But let's get a little bit deeper into to your question. I just wanted to kind of sure. show that out there because I thought that I thought that it's interesting for people to see. Like if you com- if you compare it against paid impressions, and you know that your followers are the right people, and you don't have whatever it is eighty thousand dollars to spend on ads, like. I think it can work and what I'm seeing in my personal profile that's particularly interesting for everyone is that the results get exponentially better as you continue to grow like mm-hmm. yes maybe the results are not there at 4,000 followers but wait till what happens at 12 and then 20 and then 30 and so like the, the this is the this is the reason that brand is so important is that like it does not scale linearly like as you do it it gets way way better um cool.
5: So what was the question again? <laughs> uh was just like has your perspective changed any regarding um f- focusing primarily on the personal pages versus having uh the company page involved? And it sounds like you're saying, you know, why not do both? <laughs> yeah. I mean, or there's there's no harm in doing both anyway. I think there's a couple ways to approach it. My my direct
0: recommendation for a you know, less than $30 million ARR company, and I'll give it for a larger company, but less mm-hmm. than 30 million ARR is that one SME should prove a personal profile and prove that it works. And mm-hmm. in the meantime, you can empower other people to do it on their own. And so one person prove that it works and then scale out on employees and then add company page. So in like that type of order, if you start with company page, and you don't have any personal profiles and a lot of other things. I think that it might take too long. It might not get there. So it's more like a supplement, not an either or. Gotcha.
5: Okay. Yeah, that's what I figured. And I I will
0: keep you updated as we learn more.
5: Wonderful. Thank you, Chris.
0: Good to see you, Chuck. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you. Gosh, right. my um, math was, and it's happened actually a couple, of, uh, as I'm being recorded more and more, it's very clear that like my mental math, is not very good. <sighs>
1: <laughs> Someone needs to buy Chris a calculator. <laughs> um, I had a very practical question from Matthew. Um, and I don't know if it was answered in the chat, but um, how do you go about figuring out your TAM? Actually, I think it's a good question. It's been tough for me at a couple of companies. Um I think a few people mentioned different websites um, like the Bureau of Labor, Gartner Forrester, like getting, having good sources to to get um, data when you know what your ideal customer profile is, whether it's like company size, industry, um, and, and looking that up. But curious, Chris, in your, in your experience, how do you think about this?
0: What most executives at VC funded companies do is that they, broaden and broaden their ICP and they slightly inflate their ASP in order to make their TAM feel way bigger than it actually is. And so like the, the core, the core decision point in this is that you need to define your, it's called an ideal customer profile for a reason, not everyone that could reasonably use your product. And so like, I, I like to, especially in early stages, much more narrowly define my ICP and therefore my, my addressable market because it helps me focus my messaging and my sales efforts and my marketing efforts. And then once you get in, then you have the resources and all of the other things to continue to expand what what type of market that you can serve, or you create such a good you know impression and word of mouth in that specific um, in that specific segment that other people start to take notice and come in. And so, um, I think that the 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 core piece of this is a, is not the data. Like you can, you can find the data and use your ASP and project how it's going to grow and do all of those things. Like that, that's, I think more of the formulaic part. I think the more strategic part is actually defining your ideal customer profile in a reasonable way.
1: Yep. That makes sense. Um, who, does,
0: who doesn't want to, to say that there's 5,000, you know, who, who wants to not sell to 5,000 extra accounts that, you know, might use the product and then they can go to investors and say, you know, based on our ARR, our, our TAM is 600 million, not 300
1: million. Looking through, you guys are so chatty tonight. So I'm just looking through finding, I love it. Oh, Prince, another good question. Um,
0: we got one from Jonathan too that I don't want to miss, but go ahead.
1: Um, Oh, go for it! I'll I'll save this one for Prince after. You All right, it.
0: Jonathan. This is this is a quick one, but I'm going to bring you on because maybe we'll maybe we'll take in a different direction here. See if I can find you. I'm going to unmute you. Hello. Hello. Hey, so your your question was sort of like a yes or no, um, but let's go a little bit deeper than that. So go ahead. We can ask it for everyone, and then we'll kind of talk about it.
6: What was my question? yeah was, uh
0: a b m is the darling new acronym
6: oh yeah, um anybody that's got more than one decade doing this crap knows that every five years things are just relabeled um mm-hmm. so you could call a b m key account selling uh and uh put it in a nineteen eighty eight Chevy and it's the same damn thing mm-hmm. um, so. You know, we can go in a million one directions from here. Is there anything different besides uh, innovative technology to focus on accounts that if you screw up prospecting, you can't talk to for eighteen months? Or um, you know, are there deeper things here, or is this just a, a nice shiny uh, new lipstick on a, a tried and true pig?
1: Um,
0: so we'll go and we'll go in two directions. First, here it's how many people are really doing it now, and yeah. according to the Salesforce State of Marketing 2020 report that was recently published, 92% of B2B marketers have an ABM strategy. Bullshit blows my mind. Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> so maybe they like to report it on the little survey Salesforce they, they I mean, no have- loves to report it because the ABM tool is something that's going to integrate with their software, and so there's a lot of you know, conflating variables in here, but that's what the report says. I might be misquoting it by a couple percentage points, but it was above 90%, um, which makes no sense because, like I said at the beginning, if you have less than 50K ACV, you probably shouldn't be doing quote-unquote ABM as it's prescribed you can use company firmographics in your targeting but you don't need to you don't need to have an ABM stack to do that um, what was the second piece of the question so you said you said five ten percent of people who, who say they are so I mean based on the report and this is the best data point that I have at the moment it says 92% of marketers report they have an ABM strategy and then what was the second part because I want to there was I had a thought there but i lost it
6: I mean, it's it's one thing to say you yeah, have. It's like saying uh, I'm fully functional and uh, running everything through AI, you know, and all my marketing outreach or, or customer engagements, which is also uh-huh. total bullshit. So, um, you know, if people are out there doing new things with ABM, what what is what is new that we should be looking at that just hasn't been you know done with key account focus in the past?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the easiest example that comes to mind for me is like the. The difference between filling out um filling out a request with a drift bot versus a form the form is actually easier to fill out the drift bot has this little typing thing you got to do a bunch of fields and then if so it's really the follow-up process that was broken not the submission process um and so like i, I think that there are some parallels there to what Um, so what some of the ABM tools do, like I said, I think that one of the most valuable things that those tools do is the account account engagement type of metrics. But again, those uh, right now, not a lot of people are in office. The IPs are off, like, um, mobile works very poorly. And so if you have a mobile first advertising strategy and you are using ABM tools, it's going to tell you that the, the stuff isn't working. Um, and so do I see... Places where you should definitely adopt it for sure do I do I think that every company should have terminus and be running an ABM strategy definitely not and yes i I do agree that um, account based marketing as they frame it up and I've talked about this enough times for everyone, but I 'll just mention it here as they frame it up is is basically key account selling using marketing channels to get leads for conversations and it's just like the um it's just a targeting strategy the the marketing underneath the targeting is what matters. Mm-hmm. How are you positioning? How are you messaging? Who are you engaging with? Where are you sending them to? What conversion points are you sending them to? How much does your product cost? You know, what type of content are you producing? How much content are you producing? What is the creative inside of it? And so like just being able to run a banner ad to, you know, certain IP addresses that you deem as a target account is not going to get it done.
6: Well, the one good thing from it then might be, uh, to the prior conversation, how to get CEOs to spend more money on marketing. You just call everything ABM. Because it's new, they'll, they'll want to spend money on it.
0: <laughs> and enough CEOs have invested in it that 92% of marketers think that it's their strategy. So, I mean... Yeah, and- yeah.
2: And then Uma Uma here, and I am seeing so many jobs out there where they are looking for, for ABM strategists, somebody who's done it for four years or three years. And it's like all of a sudden it's become this new buzzword that you've got to know if you want to be employable.
0: You know, I unfortunately, I don't have control over how people hire people. And for, for some companies, it's the right skill. And like, like I had a, I'm going to have a lot of good quotes and I can't wait to send all of you this podcast because it was great about how the guy I was interviewing started his career. He was like one of the first people that ever used Marketo and built his entire career on performance marketing. And now here we are in 2020 and doesn't do any performance marketing. And so That would, it's kind of like right now, like there's a lot of young, it doesn't have to be young. There's a lot of marketers right now that could build their career on ABM. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just the truth. Like when the market wants something like I choose to, to do things that are unique and differentiated. And I think just ahead of where people are operating. Um, but it wouldn't take me too long to take a step back, figure out APM, and then go get a VP of demand at a uh, half a million ARR type of enterprise sale. Like, so I think a lot of people could learn it and could find good opportunities. It's just like the the market wants it. The market's always right. Amen. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your question, John. We might have you back again. We'll,
1: Thank we'll, you, guys. We'll see
0: if there's more questions in the queue. Good to see you.
1: We haven't had Prince on yet tonight, so let's bring our friend on.
0: (laughs) He's blowing up the chat, though.
1: This is, um, I think this is also, like, related to the topic that Ashley brought up earlier around, um, and Prince, I'll let you speak to it, but, like, throwing out maybe the old school email nurture, and if we throw that out, what is the and hopefully I'm interpreting your question, right, Prince, but what's the master nurturing marketing sales funnel content creation strategy? Um, Do you want to clarify Prince your, your question there?
3: Yeah. Struggling with my voice this morning, but uh, I I think you're on point. So, Essentially, uh, it, I mean, it's more so related to driving more inbound, right? And creating value propositions for your customers so that uh, they're primed up by the time they get to you and uh, tying it back to Chuck's question that he just asked right now, all right uh, The paid social thing. Um, if you focus on value proposition, they are indeed primed up. So what I'm essentially asking is what would be key characteristics of uh, you know qualifying a, a great Um, nurturing sales slash marketing funnel and how do you master it uh, so that once the customers are i mean they have there's this rule of seven the seven times they see your brand and they know you then Um, by the time they get to your company's page they're primed up to buy Um, how do you identify what characteristics do you use to qualify that
0: you know, it's, it's super interesting. And I was thinking a lot while you were, you were asking that question, which is that like, I could come up with some creative answer about like when everyone follows me on LinkedIn, like they get a couple posts, I comment on theirs, there's a little funnel being built. Eventually some people will trickle down and do it, but I just never think that way. You know what I mean? My, my thought process is just, how do I continuously bring value to people? And as I produce more content that, is educates and helps more people be successful. It will create more awareness about what I do and people will trust me and more people that need whatever I'm selling will know about me versus whoever else is the alternative. And when more people know about me, more people will use my, use my service versus other people's. And so, um, I, I personally just don't, don't think about things in like funnels cause you, people are, humans and so I just think that it's a it's more complex than that I think that a lot of people will sell you on the idea that all you got to do is just find a way to get a thousand email addresses and put them in the top and then as you whittle it down with some different things five people will fall out Um, and you can do that and five people might fall out and my position is that all of the work to create those five all that work would be better used doing something else and you would get ten or twenty um, I
1: think you can break down what you're saying, though, Chris, into characteristics, right? Totally. So, uh, talk me through, talk me through c- it. Consistency, um, you know, volume, quality, audience, focused. audience yep. focused, value add, relevant, entertaining, interesting, controversial, right? Like these, like you it, could break down. It's also input. about
0: choosing the the right delivery channels, right? Like if I was sending the same type of content that I produce on LinkedIn every day through email, I would be nowhere close to where I am right now. Right. And so it's also about choosing the right channel. Like you can do email at a one day frequency. Like I post on LinkedIn and there's no, sh- there's very little shareability in email. There's way little network effect. The discoverability is, is awful. And so I don't know why people are so obsessed with using email. It's just like, I think that um evolving from that perspective and the pushback is like i don't on LinkedIn like I don't own the data. And it's like, well, somebody changes companies, they change their email, and you could get it on Zoom info for a dollar anyway and so um can email work absolutely does it work yes do i do we execute it for clients? yes. Um, like, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm against email. It's that I prioritize it in the order that it deserves, which is like, it's my fifth priority, not my number one.
3: Love it. And let me just ask a follow-up to validate that because I'm on the same page and, um, I, I saw a lot of questions going around. So I just wanted to put that out there. How much, or, or have you been able to qualify? I think you have been, uh, sorry, quantify. Yeah, I think you have been, uh, how much of your company's followership is, increasing based on the content you individually put up. You know, I'm following the same strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is that element of uh, human connection because people connect with human beings rather than automated bots or, you know, (laughs)
0: um, I is, is there a number for sure? Um, is it like that meaningful? No. Like if you look at the span of the last 12 months, I've probably gotten, I don't have the data. I I could pull it up if we really want to go into it, but it's probably somewhere between 10 and 25 million views on LinkedIn in the last 12 months. And we had like, before we started posting on LinkedIn, we had like 2,500 followers. Right. And so like, yes, there was a ton of visibility through my posts and my profile views. And some people went through and followed the company page when we weren't posting a lot, but it just wasn't enough to make an impact. If that makes sense. Like you'll get some, um but i wouldn't hang your hat on that being like a way that's going to drive meaningful results
3: no absolutely so we focus on content i, I just pasted a link here for everybody uh it's a b2b value uh, pyramid uh, you know just just as uh something that would help people
0: thanks prince good to talk to you man really super happy that you find enough value in this to wake up at 5am and come hang with us max Scholl, get on here
5: Hey, how's it going, Chris? Hey, man, what's up? Uh, so, yeah, just a question on intent data. It can just mm-hmm. be like a big rabbit hole that you go down to. It's like a new shiny object, kind of like ABM. Um, just curious on if you think it's even worth like pretty hefty price tag that it pulls on. Like, yes, it can signal that people are interested in your product. But if you're actually doing like demand gen, content, getting all of that up and running correctly, then you shouldn't even really need that. Um, per se, it should just come to you purely you run the engine, right? So, I want to get your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah. So, um, when I survey smart um, people in Martech, people that serve hundreds of enterprise companies and do their Marketo builds and all the other integrations and all those different things, and I ask them, what is the most overhyped Martech category right now? The most common answer is intent data. I really, and I've tested a lot of intent data. And I think that it's over, if you're using it in a marketing context, I think it is incredibly overhyped, like true marketing to use it as a targeting criteria to go after someone in ads. Like we have tested G2, Trust Radius, Bambora. There's probably one other one that I can't remember right now. All those different ones, taking that account data, built ABM list with function targeting on top of it targeted all those people with our demand programs for months and the the cold targeted audiences that we go after that use company firmographics and function targeting work better um and so the the place where i see intent data being used well i feel like is to activate quote unquote warm outbound like i think it's actually a better sales tool and whether you want to put like that SDR camp into marketing and chalk it up that way, that's fine. But it's like whether whoever they sit underneath in the organization, and I, I believe that it's sales. Um and so that's the place where I think that companies are deploying it the most and probably the most useful way to use that data right now.
5: Yeah. Kind of in the same boat. I think we'll see if we can use it like that great for marketing, but I'm thinking it's going to be better for like outbound and letting the reps use that. So cool. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Max.
1: Got an interesting one from Nuom. Um, And it's a little lengthy. So I think this is another great one to bring him on if you're up for it. And I hope I pronounced your name correctly.
0: Nuom, you're back.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Hello, hello. (laughs)
7: um yeah it was a little bit of a long one I guess I'm in a position right now where I'm being asked to produce you know some marketing collateral a brochure in particular um for our sales team to go in and hunt down uh the corporate market. Um it's kind of like an enterprise deal. We're fairly new in the space. Um so we don't have a brand there that's recognizable. Um and so basically it's something that we're sort of trialling. We've had one or two clients who are doing it with us at the moment and so all of a sudden it's we need to put a nice little glossy brochure and just go out there and and reach as many new accounts with it as we can. what else did I say in there? So the ideas that I have in the corporate space, especially, um, especially from listening to you guys for the last couple of months, is all all kind of long-term. Um, you know I want to build the brand. I want to make sure that we're we're discussing these really interesting topics to the right people in these companies. Um we're essentially selling a service that uh, involves a few stakeholders, mm-hmm. so you've got who manage all the supply chain agreements um, and then we've got the TA hiring managers and HR who decide how people come and who decide how people are sourced into the business um, and then there's finance who at the end of the day decide you know whether or not they need to cut um, and so they're the ones that end up putting the pressure on the rest of the Stakeholders. So we're trying to deal with all of that and understand their buying behavior. Um, but then, yeah, there's a pressure on marketing to, you know, sort of mm-hmm. put, put the offer together, put a nice little two-pager and then just allow the salespeople to go after accounts, possibly okay. just to say, Here's what I've got. Here's what we've got. If people,
0: if people on here notice, I moved it to gallery view because I'm going to do a poll, and the poll is. I don't even know how to ask the question, the way to get the answer. But it's like, when's the last time anyone read a brochure like thoughtfully and went through it in person? Like anyone gives me a brochure, it goes directly in the trash. <laughs> um, like, well, yeah, thumbs up or thumbs down. Last five years. Like it's a no. Nobody here. Oh, John. John likes the brochures. He's getting a plus one. Okay. We got one. We got (laughs) Ashley who kind of likes the brochures too. All right. I stand corrected, but John is way down on the the brochures. So um, in my experience um, about making the brochures, typically it's a reactive response from sales. And the key for for me that as I went through this and learned after I made the you know me and my team made the third brochure and then we printed a hundred copies and never got used um, is to really try and understand what they're really asking for because they're asking you for a brochure but they need something else they either they need
2: okay yeah
0: so it's like trying and try and dig a layer deeper to what is the actual um, the actual problem that they're trying to solve or the actual outcome that they need because the brochure becomes the go-to thing that they think they need. But I think if you ask deeper, you'd figure out something else. Maybe it's a 10 minute interview with an SME addressing the objection. Maybe it's, yeah, you. you know, a, a two minute walkthrough demo video that they can watch without needing to go into the facility and drop it off right now. There's a million different things. It's our job. Especially when you're getting these requests, one to be able to deeply understand what they really mean, and two, being able to thoughtfully push back on on the things that you're working on that are driving outcomes, and try and defer them, <laughs> defer that request. Um, so that's my thought. in a, In big in large organizations, somebody's going to have to make the brochure, right? Um, my feeling is that um, if we go, if emails number five on the list. Brochures are way down. Brochures are close to the last thing on the list.
1: Yeah. yeah. Even pose the question that Chris posed to the group, right, to the people you're working with, and ask them, "When's the last time you <laughs> looked at a brochure and made a buying decision?" <laughs> um, as a way to as a way to prove your point, politely, of course. <laughs> um, yes, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Chuck has another good question that several people thought was was good. Are there any branding and marketing thought leaders you'd recommend following besides yourself, Chris. Um, are there any branding models you recommend in constructing a brand? I personally enjoy Donald Miller's story brand. I also like Andy Cernovitz, Andrew Davis byron sharp curious who you enjoy listening and reading and reading
0: you know one of the really like and a couple people like i like reading dave gerhardt stuff like i like reading about stuff that are people in agreement but there's a couple things here i talk to a lot of smart people that never post on linkedin And so like, that's, that's one thing is that like, um, and I, it's almost like within five minutes, I'm like, yeah, this is, they get it. Um, so that's one. The second thing is that I've been way more interested recently watching how companies market, not how people tell you to market. And so I, I go in and I will follow companies that are quote unquote paving the way in, in marketing. And then I see when they post a gated case study on LinkedIn, I see when they post when they have an Instagram story that makes me stop and watch the whole 15 seconds. I click and look at their landing pages and look at how good they are and what they're trying to do and where they put the button and whether or not I would click on it and where I dropped off. And so it's really interesting if you think about going through other companies marketing as a consumer and then trying to figure out and learn from that. Like I've been, I've been doing that since 2016. I take all the things that I like, I throw out all the shit that I don't and I just start building my own, right? Like you're using other people's, someone else paid an agency a hundred thousand dollars to put that ad together. So I'm going to take the things that are good about it and I'm going to go and do it on my own for a thousand dollars, you know? So it's almost like let other people have figured out certain things that you can kind of take. Um,
1: Are there any companies that come to mind that you think do a good job?
0: um, I've talked about this last, last one. I think the one that's doing at least the one that's marketing to me, um, I think in the most progressive and effective way is a company called Rippling. I think they raised like $200 million and it's pretty obvious that they're, you know, everywhere that I look. Um, And you know, I haven't bought their stuff, but it's the only HR IT tech that I know about. At some point as a CEO, I might need to make that investment and I'm not going to Google and evaluating options. I'm just going to get it. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think, I think a lot of people under underestimate like that, that type of stuff matters. Um, so that, that's one, um, if you wanted to look like, and it's also about the components. Like I think that Rippling is doing an incredible job in paid social, specifically paid Facebook and Instagram. Um, and I think, you know, outreach and gravy and a couple other companies are doing a really good job with employee profiles on LinkedIn. And so I, it's, it's almost like you can look at one company's mix, but most companies are leaning into a specific Channel or, or thing, and so start to try and like widen the sphere and look at certain companies that you can you can usually clearly tell what channel they're focused on, um, which is main, probably where they're putting their best people and their most their most budget. And so you could go and look at that and reverse engineer what they're trying to do and what outcomes they might be getting.
1: Um, Alyssa has. A good question about how do you go about aligning your sales org towards the metrics that matter, i.e. convincing your sales teams that cold outbound calls and list buying is not effective for a SaaS company uh, with an LTV of 50K plus and a long complex sales cycle.
0: Alyssa, get on here. We got a lot to talk about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, how's
8: it going?
0: (laughs) Hey, great. Okay. Okay. Tell me a little bit more. So 50 K lifetime value, but what's the, what's the annual value?
8: Um, it varies quite a bit right now because we switched our ICP dramatically. Um, so we have everything from, um, you know, a hundred thousand annual to, uh, 10 million. So it's, it's pretty, it's kind of hard to, uh, uh, look at the numbers there at that point. Uh, and mm-hmm. it will be for a while, but, um, yeah, it's a bit, it's a big range from our yeah. like legacy customers to our new enterprise level customers.
0: <laughs> yeah. But hundred K is still a lot on an annual basis, right? Like it's still a pretty, totally. pretty yeah. big deal size. And then it goes all the way up. Like, um, this is not going to, to make, this might surprise some people, but like at those ACVs, like you, you should be doing outbound. <laughs> like you, I mean, I, I, you should be. Um, and at, I think almost any range above, it's not that you sh- should only lean into marketing, but I think the point that I'm trying to make when I communicate some of this stuff is that the investment level between the two functions, is so imbalanced. And so it's it's more so the company that spends 95% of their budget on sales to sell those companies and none in marketing creates a lot of inefficiencies on the sales side and you're missing out of a lot of opportunity by not covering it. Um, but when you're selling hundred K plus deals, you're going to, you're going to be doing cold outbound. You can go and get the six cents tool, which I think is a great, um, a great tool for, to activate quote unquote, warm outbound, um, based on intent data or other signaling. So I think that would be an interesting point. Um, list buying is to, to do nurtures or one-to-one type of stuff. Like I'm not a big fan of it. I know, like, I know there are companies. Like, let's get into some details here. I know there are companies that are have a service that's like sales development associates, where they go and they source real information for people that are in your ICP, so that your salespeople don't need to do that like low level work. And they probably have systems and all these things to figure it out. Like, that's probably a good use of money than using your full time employee to to do that um, do that activity if that's part of your strategy, right? And so, when it gets back to it. I think that, um, I, I wouldn't spend time convincing them that they shouldn't be doing it. I, just pure experience, like they're going to do it. It's just figuring out how you can get the thing that you need to do what you want to do as well.
1: So. And I would, yeah. I think I would add here, I think a lot of this also, you, you bring up the point around aligning the orgs. And I think what can happen in a lot of companies is sales gets a number um, and they come up with a plan and a strategy to get that number. Marketing gets a budget. They figure out how they're going to use that budget, right? And so um, I remember um, at, at Q when I actually had the opportunity where I was running marketing sales and account management. Um, and it had great marketing leaders, given that it's not my my area of functional expertise. Um, I think the best year we had was when we all made our plan together and we had a very holistic strategy of this is the company goal that we want to hit and here are all of the leverage that we have there are things we can do in marketing and sales and success um, there are different things we can do across these different functions different paths we can take to get to the same goal as a group let's all decide what we believe is the right strategy where we can each each team can use their strengths in contribution of that goal like that are complementary to to one another mm-hmm. i think so much of the problems that exist are individual teams just make their own plan and it either doesn't jive with or complement, or I've also seen it contradict other team plans. And I think it's that lack of, um, I think, clarity at the company level, having a North Star goal to work towards and people not investing in bringing all of those teams Together, um, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all strategy, but making sure that you have that approach um, to company planning, goal alignment, having a real a real strategy that spans teams is, I think, critical here as well. Yeah, we've done some
8: major work on that, so um, thank you. That's that's all great uh, advice because we one of our biggest challenges right now is sales and marketing alignment. Um, yeah I was just curious to get your take on the like cold outbound like outsourcing to a third party who doesn't know your tech uh at all right cold outbound sales uh calls which you know kind of seemed a little weird to me when our return on ad spend is like nine to one um you know where I feel like I could pull some other lovers that would maybe be more Valuable, but um, we are going to test it. But I just was curious to see, you know, if anyone's had success with that, or you know, what your past experience has been. So thanks.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the same thing. If I was looking to run a marketing experiment, like I would, I would like the space to be able to to do the experiment. So I think we have to. We can't be talking out of both sides of our mouth. If they want to run this experiment, we should let them. Like I kind of know what it's going to look like, but. Um, at those, at those types of ACV levels, it's a volume game. Um, and if those people are just booking meetings and you project that you're going to win two to 4% of those meetings, like you can, you can make the math work. Um, so yeah, I would, I would run, I would let the experiments run and then I would just make a black and white comparison. The second thing that you should think about is, is you should, do you know how much you should be spending? Like you just said nine to one. I'm guessing that's ROAS or on, on lifetime mm-hmm. value, not ARR. Um, yeah. ROAS. And so like, do you know how much more room there is where you could maintain that type of ROI?
8: Um, I mean, right now for 12 K uh, we get 114 grand. So it's uh, mm-hmm. you know, pretty, I don't know. Seems through logical paid, to me. Paid search. Yeah. Through paid. Mm-hmm. Paid search and display.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, the things we can get into some details here, cause I spent a lot of time doing it. I did it this morning. The first thing that I would do is I would figure out what your, your most positive ROI keywords are. I would look at your search impression share and you can calculate how much you should be spending. So I'll go into a, a company, you know, they have 34 conversions for a certain keyword and they have less than 10% impression share. And they're losing 75% due to rank and they're losing 12% due to budget. And so there's a lot of work to be done optimizing that ad. It's not even really, there's, it's not a budget. It's not mostly a budget issue. It's a rank issue. And so you can go in there and look at the, the metric as search impression share. And then you can look at how much is lost due to rank, how much is lost due to budget, what position you are on average. You can look at a lot of those different metrics and then figure out how much you should be spending. So you can actually project out, project out at a, try and, um, minimum 75% impression share. And so if you're spending 12 and you could, you could go and make the case that you would get the exact same, um, ROI at a certain, at a budget increase. And that's what I would do. That's a very black and white yeah. conversation.
8: Cool. Yeah. That, uh, that validates my,
1: my hunch. So
0: right on. <laughs> thanks. Cool. Happy to help.
1: Ooh, a fun question from Uma. Key difference in marketing approach towards SaaS versus on-prem product.
0: Uma, get back on here, I'm not sure. (laughs) We need a little bit more detail here. I mean, SaaS versus on-prem is just like. Okay.
2: uh, so here, uh, I am looking for a job, right? So I'm Mm -hmm. talking to all the different companies and there's this one company that I'm really interested in. They used to be uh, more, on-prem product, and now they're going SaaS model. Mm-hmm. And so I have done on-prem and SaaS marketing both, and um, I don't see much of a difference in approach uh, other than wordings and um, maybe um, how you release the product updates in, in terms of software. What is it that you see in your experience, Um that, that um, when people go SaaS model, how should you customize your marketing approach?
0: Um, so a, a couple key things that I look at when I'm looking for a, a place that I might want to work, culture and the executives at the top, um, the actual product, the market and that they're in and whether or not it's growing or not. And so the key point of why I say that is that if they're, if they're on-prem and they're just moving to SaaS, they are not a digitally native company. And I think long-term they're going to struggle, right? Like if you're, if you're moving from on-prem to SaaS and it's 2020, like you, yeah, there's larger, there's larger issues in that business long-term I feel like if they they haven't made the switch over the past two decades. Right. And so that's, that's one key, key kind of insight that I, that I heard when you were asking. Um, And then there's a lot of there, I think there's a lot of differences between a SaaS model and an on-prem on-prem has usually a huge upfront cost of installation and different things like that. The total cost of ownership is high. You need someone in person to do it. Um, The updates are incredibly painful at times to the, to the software. And so like um, I think there's a lot of different marketing challenges between the two SaaS the the actual cost of ownership is spread out more evenly than in an on-prem model. Um, so I think you take quite a different approach, but in general, like without knowing anything else, besides what you've told me, um, it wouldn't be a place where I gravitated toward to be an employee. Cool.
2: That's, that's, that's a good one to something thanks Uma.
0: always love your questions happy to help can't wait so we can come back here one day and we can celebrate when you got your job (laughs) just make sure it's the right one okay right on there's one from.
2: i'm gonna ping you chris
0: can't wait we'll celebrate (laughs) um cool we got one from one from matthew here which i think is interesting um do you think virtual events will be a thing post-covid um, Megan, you want to jam on this one for a little bit? You have some ideas on events and happy to answer it, but I'm sure that we'll kind of be in alignment here on what we're thinking.
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, I definitely think virtual events will still be a thing um, post, post-COVID. Um, I, I do think that as soon as people can gather in, in small and large groups, um, they absolutely will. Um, and I think it'll be great to have live events again. Um, uh, but I think that virtual events, um, I mean, they work. Um, I think they have an opportunity to have a broader reach. Um, I think you have an opportunity to have sessions like this that happen on a frequency where in-person might not work. I think it's so cool that we have people, like on every continent on this call, um, which wouldn't be possible. Um, you know, if we all had to go to the HubSpot conference in Boston. Um, and so I, yeah, I absolutely think there's, there's a place for it. I'm, I'm really interested and excited about how we evolve like past like Zoom and something like this, right? Like this is great and this works awesome, but I think that, there's absolutely an opportunity to enhance and disrupt what a virtual event is. Um, I haven't actually participated in one, but um, we're, we were talking to an event company was saying that that they'd have 10,000 people on a virtual event, which seems like insane to me, um, but, but that's happening in places. Um, so I think the people that will win will have – a strategy that combines in-person and virtual, and they're, they're gonna continue to get really creative on um, how to continue to uh, make the event even more interesting, entertaining, engaging. Um, some of my favorite moments on these sessions is when we bring you all into the conversation, right? And so um, how can you do that in, in a scalable way? So that's overall, that's my view. I don't know what you would add, Chris.
0: I think smart companies will move into a hybrid model. I think that's what they should have been doing before this happened as well. And so um, it's interesting to think about how this situation has just pushed people to do things that they should have been doing anyway. Um, And so, yes, I think hybrid is the answer. I think virtual events will still be around because of the... Pure, just like broader scale that you can hit by doing it, and the le- lower cost, and all these different reasons. The thing that the the thing that has changed that have made my events um, not just like the one we're doing here, but even when I was working as a demand marketer in 2016, wh- why I feel like my events have always, I think, just performed better is because my primary objective of the event is content creation not sales and so um i think that the companies that recognize that that reality and put their audience first and make it more interactive like what we're doing here is one way to do it but there's plenty of other ways to engage with an audience polls things insights however you want to do it um i think there's a lot of different ways that that, that there could be um, value provided and so it's put the audience first content as the primary objective know how to measure it the right way i think the companies that look at virtual events that way open up a world of opportunity you do one solid virtual event per quarter that's one day long and you bring 5000 people in you have a bunch of different sessions you have content for the entire year you have content more content that you can publish you have your options about which is the which are the best clips not trying to figure out you know, what kind of like meme you can flip, flip together for Instagram the next week. And so, um, I do, I do think that the hybrid will end up being the approach for mm, progressive companies. Prince, can you drive, can you drive sales without any SDRs in house? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Prince all right.
1: Has to go. He left earlier.
0: That's all right. <laughs> yeah, got stuff to do. <laughs> what do we got? We got one I think we can do. Did
1: you find another one?
0: I haven't, but I've been looking through. That's yeah. some Matthew commenting and hot takes. <laughs> nice be- oh, wow. I'm, I'm scrolling down. It's like 99 plus new messages. I'm way behind. <laughs> All right, let's see. Let's scroll down to the bottom.
1: Oh, yeah. Mark asked a new question at the bottom. Chris, why... Why did you advise to go outbound at 100K ACV earlier? Can we dig deeper into that? Do you have a marker for when companies should scale outbound teams versus not based on ARR ACV?
0: Mark, where are you at, brother? Let's get you on here. Sweet be fun.
6: All right, I'm in.
0: You're in. What's up, man? Good to see you. First, first time I've seen you. Good to have you.
6: Yeah, no, I've been I've been following you guys for a while, so I'm I'm stoked to be on here. I, I was just interested. You you talked a little bit about like at a certain range, it makes sense to go outbound, which makes sense to me too, right? Mm-hmm. Like at a certain range of enterprise clients, of course, you want to get targeted. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering is for certain companies in the space that you plan, do you advise like there's just the natural scaling of hey, we're gonna we're gonna hire more BDrs, right? Like we're just gonna do that. Mm-hmm. Actually, have advice for them on a trajectory for that based on ARR or ACB? Like, I I was just interested by the fact that you said at that marker, it makes sense to have outbound. Like, have you thought Mm -hmm. about that in a deeper way and do you
0: advise people on that? Yeah, I mean, for me, the the bottom end minimum where it makes no sense to have um, the specialized roles between an SDR and an account executive is if you're less than 10K, it literally makes no sense. Um, now that's, if you have really strong, like efficiency of those two things, factoring in the cost, the funnel metrics, the sales compensation, like, and you get to a CAC payback period, like it's not that strong. And then so for a mid middle performing, it's probably 15 K. Um, but then when it comes down to, if you're a small company, how could you differently allocate those dollars to get a different result? Um, and So 100K feels obvious to me that any company would be using that because if you look at the funnel metrics and the cost between those things and like what you would project, like it's unless your product sucks and you're very bad at doing this, like it's probably going to be okay. It's just not going to be that efficient as it scales. And so when I think about if you were going to continue to scale out your BDR team, I would think about trying to, just up level the people that you already have. Right. And so instead of scaling by number of people, what if you just had better people? And so, especially when you're selling at higher deal sizes, I don't think that the way to do it is by increasing the number of dials. I think it's about increasing the effectiveness of the people that are making the dials and doing the different things. Um, so that's just like happy to answer a follow up, but that's just kind of like my, my position on it is that, Um, I think that the companies that, whether it's scaling SDR teams or scaling AE teams, because the model is inefficient and because they want to grow the team so fast, they actually lose out on the highest quality people. And then because they are paying at or below market value and for different reasons, that's why they, their retention metrics are less than two years. Yeah. So I would be much more interested in having half as many sales reps that are way more experienced and higher paid and more productive um, that's stayed with the company for four years on average instead of two and so um, if i if I was you know building out a sales team I would think about how to how to figure out how to do that so I can put my sales team in a position where they don't need to change jobs after two years That's the way that I would think about it.
1: I think I'll add to this too. I think another way to to unpack this is think about how how are your buyers buying? Like, what is the process that they have to go through in order to become aware of your product, um, assess options, go through a purchasing decision, um, and that should also inform what the go to market is through marketing and and sales, right? And like, so when you talk about a massively priced product and an enterprise, like they're not just going to go to a website and buy something, right? Like they will need to speak with someone. There'll be multiple conversations, multiple meetings, this and that. So I think um, just another angle to look at this is based on your ICP and your ACV, you know, walk through what the buyer has to do, and and that should make it pretty clear where you'll want to deploy sales to enable that process, and how you can support um, and enhance that through marketing as well. So I think that's a that's another uh-huh. piece of it. I would add. Oh, Jonathan's got a follow up. Uh-huh. How do you how do you help companies map how prospects find them or how they find? prospects or that kind of where I was going <laughs> <laughs> for that. So like, how do you go about the process of understanding how your buyers buy
8: mm-hmm.
1: is what you're, is what you're saying, Jonathan? Oh,
6: sorry. I, I just realized I could unmute. Um, <laughs> you got yeah, control. You got it. Cause you went, you went at it from the other side of the coin because um <laughs> You know, especially with SaaS, you're going to have so many different potential starting points to get across the chasm and land and expand with people now. So you can have a variety of inbounds and outbounds. And, and to Chris's point, sub 10,000, who cares? But um, are people finding you? Have you, you know, what like what you walk through, you know, are people able to find you? Are they searching for it? Is, are you part of, a, you know, that virtual B2B Amazon shopping experience? Or do you have to go out and find them? and figuring that out. Yeah, I'm curious from the, from the demand gen or the marketing perspective, how you work with companies to make them help them figure this out, you know, cause they might start in one place, need to go to another. They might need to reblend how they're going about it, but mm-hmm. you know, everything's going to need a different way of understanding how your customers are finding you or you're finding them and creating that opportunity moment or SQL.
0: Yeah. This is uh <sighs> something that I posted about on a uh, comment actually, cause I didn't post today on LinkedIn, I missed it, but, um, I commented on it and it got a lot of engagement, um, which is the first thing you need to assess is are there people that are actively looking for what you do? That's the first step. And then that, if there is then search, search is the first place to be first, start with paid and then figure out organic on high buying intent keywords and on the off case that that isn't the, isn't the case, which I think is where our model, uh, we can crush paid search, but where, where we make a huge impact is for places that do not have a lot of existing demand. They're selling a disruptive product. People don't know about it. They haven't created the category, blah, 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 all those different reasons. Then you got to focus on how you create awareness and awareness channels, right? So if people are already looking for you, and there's a huge volume and you know that you're not capturing all of that demand and you, you know that there's, you know, you're not doing great. And there's a lot of other places to win, then focus on all of the intent channels first Sur- search conversion rate optimization, lead handoff optimization, review sites like G2 and all those different places. Like those are a good place to optimize first when you have Thousands of potential buyers looking for something like what you do. On the flip side, if there's only 10 searches a month for this one keyword, then cover that. And then you got to focus on how do you create demand in awareness channels? So, how do you drive awareness of your product? I like, I mean, you can, we use traditional advertising and it does work very well. But if it's a complex sale, you're going to have to do some education steps. And so, what I would do is I would think, let's, let's pretend your sales cycle is 180 days. And it takes you whatever, six meetings on average to, to close it and figure out what are the key things that someone needs to take away from those six meetings and then start to reverse engineer how you deliver it to them in a different way. What are the objections? What are the things that they don't know about? When do they ask questions? And, and then how do you reframe and package it? Cause you can't just promote a blog post. This is, you know, why do people object to this statement? So you have to figure out thoughtful ways to educate them where it doesn't feel like you're trying to sell them something um so in general i guess the easiest way is just to to understand what your search terms are and then figure out whether or not they're looking for you good good uh good question here maybe one more maybe wrap up i don't think we're going to set the uh demand gen live record tonight
1: if we keep trying to break records every week, this is going to be a long <laughs> show. Um, okay. Oh, from Bob. Yeah. At the bottom. Yep. Off let me top.
0: see if I can, let me see if I can cover this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks, Jess. <laughs> um Okay the facebook audience is 75k for icpb or 300k for icp A and b it's 300k too big even if icp even if gets to icpa or 75k criteria not met acb bob what i would do here is i would break out the two audiences separately and i would see how they perform and then based on the performance of those uh, segmented tests like in an ideal world, um, which is not something that I do every time, but if there's going to be massive spend or I'm trying to get complex or whatever, I would take every individual targeting criteria and its own ad set, this job title, this interest, this interest on top of this, you know, this professional association. I would take all of them individually, test each audience with the same piece of content, maybe multiple pieces of content to make sure that the content isn't the issue. And then I would use all of the audiences that performed well and I would start bucketing them together and make sure that the results stay the same. And at one, at some point you should end up with an audience that has a group of collective targeting criteria that you can consistently go to. Um, so that would be, yeah, Bob says, perfect. Thanks. That That's how I would do it. And so, you know, I, I break it down into... I'll give you the example. We were selling, um, a product to hospitals. So there was a bunch of different ways that I could get to respiratory therapists, job title, respiratory therapy, field of study, respiratory therapy, um, professional association, American association of respiratory care. Um, and so three different ways to get to the same group of people. I put, I test them individually. They all perform the same. I put them together and then I had my RT audience. And then over here I'm going after, um, nurses. But do ER nurses and ICU nurses perform the same? Do I need to split them out for some different reason? And so being able to, when you, you should be able to know if you understand the audience, whether or not the, that level of segmentation is required for whatever you're trying to do. Um, and then over time, you'll get to, you know, I had an RT audience, an ER, um, a nurse audience and a physician audience. And I would just go to those people and sometimes I would run them all together when this that level of segmentation wasn't required. Get it done, Bob. Let me know how it goes.
5: Not. Cool, cool. Well,
0: hey. a lot of chatter. Um, I'd be really interested um, to understand if people like I can I can see it. I would love to know if people are like building relationships on the side. Um, we don't position this is like a community. I know communities are popping up all over the sales community and I see a couple of them on the marketing side as well, kind of popping up that are paid. Um, We choose not to because I just don't think that it's, I just don't think it's necessary um, to to charge for this Um, and love having you all here. And I, you know, I I would rather have you here than have 10 bucks or whatever I'm going to charge for it. You know what I mean? So appreciate all of you being here. Um, yeah, I would love to know whether it's, you know, in the chat or in the post or an email afterwards, if you are meeting other people or, or, you know, building relationships or getting other things, or I guess anything meaningful that you feel like you've gotten out of this, that you would, that I might not know about, would love to know about it. So however you want to share that with me would, uh, would learn a lot and would appreciate it. And, um, yeah, Megan, want to, want to close us out?
1: Yeah, I think um, to build on that a little bit, um, it's been really fun. Last week and this week, almost doing like the really leaning into the live Q and get the sense that um, everyone enjoys that. I think it's fun to get different people on the line, um, and you guys can all you know be famous and have your moment on on the podcast. Um, so curious if if that instinct is is correct. So I would love. Love some feedback on that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think you know it's funny a lot of the um, a lot of the topics that that we talk about um, and that came up tonight uh, are really around how do we work within our company to make change? And I think change management and challenging the status quo, being the person that has the new idea, um, you know, fighting against the machine. Um, it's, it, it's something that I think all of us come against, come up against every day. And I think that it can be frustrating, especially if you're dealing with people that are not open-minded or that push back or, you know, um, don't use common sense to see your logic and that, that you might be right. But I think one thing that is really important and what I constantly remind myself of is, Um, it's always better to, to, to not give up and to, to fight your good fight and to continue to bring things up and, you know, continue to remind them just because they say, no, it's not no forever. It's no right now. Um, I can't tell you, you know, how many times I would bring up the same topic because I was just like, I know this is the right thing to do and I'm going to keep bringing it up and eventually someone's going to let me try it or do it. Um, and, you know, yeah, you can piss some people off, you can annoy people, you can rub people the wrong way, but I'm a believer that it's 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 people like us that will continue to push the boundaries and continue to try and change people's minds, shift people's perspectives. Um, it's never... Um, it's never a bad idea to do that. So that that just really felt like the underlying theme in so many of the questions that came up today. So I know all of you guys are fighting your own battles at work or otherwise, and uh, would just give you all the the motivation and the inspiration to to keep trying and bring your bring your battles back uh, next Tuesday night, and we can continue to unpack them together.
0: And um, we see, I see a couple requests for. Um, a Slack channel, and so what we'll do as homework is we'll figure out. Um, I, I feel like we should do some type of challenge in order to unlock the Slack channel because it'll actually be quite a bit of work, and so let's make sure that it's worth it. Um, love, love helping you. Um, I get like nine million Slack notifications every day, and so um, we'll figure out something to make it fun, and then we will try and figure out a way to make that happen because uh, I've seen it pop up in the chat a million times, and so. Stay tuned for next week. We'll uh, we'll have some more on the Slack channel. Hope you all have a great rest of your week. Short week for some people that celebrated Labor Day yesterday, and so four day work week. Um, let's uh, let's go get it done. And Gitano promised that he would be back. So if anyone wants to give him a hard time, like tag him in a post and be like, "Hey man, if you don't show up, blah 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 blah," I totally encourage that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, Chris, Megan, um, Uma here. I want to jump in. This feels like a condensed marketing class. Every time I come in thinking I know and then and, and I hear you guys talk, there's so much more to learn. So I, I really vote really strongly for a LinkedIn group or somewhere where we continue this learning and conversation. Um, there are like so many nuggets here and it's like, oh my God, I want to learn more about this, learn more about that. And I see from Noam and Alyssa and all everybody talking about it, so if there's something you want to con- consider, that would be amazing.
0: Cool. We will, we will absolutely consider it. I appreciate the feedback. And so I'm um, happy that it's helpful for you and everyone else here. Um, so stay tuned. We'll be back with more info next week.
1: Have a good week, everybody. Bye,
0: everyone. Good to see you.
1: Take care.